From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Tuition at the University of Colorado has been on the rise. So has the cost of living for educators. We've had faculty who have been offered jobs and who haven't accepted those jobs because of housing costs. The sole finalist for the job of CU president says there'd be better pay and cheaper tuition if the state invested more in higher education. But a law called Tabor limits that. So Todd Salomon wants a doubling of federal Pell Grants. I'll speak with him as regents prepare to vote on his presidency. Then, what a row of working-class homes that survived the wrecking ball tells us about the preservation of Latino history. And later, what long-haul COVID might reveal about chronic fatigue. A doctor shares his personal journey. There is no shame in being sick with this. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. To lead the University of Colorado is akin to leading a city. The four schools, Boulder, Denver, Colorado Springs, and the medical campus, have some 60,000 students, 37,000 employees. And CU's regents have named a sole finalist for the president's job, Todd Salomon, who's been serving as interim. Critics see him as an unimaginative pick. He does know his way around the state capitol and around a spreadsheet. He used to be a state lawmaker and was budget director under former Democratic Governor Bill Ritter. Todd, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. The CU system hasn't had an academic in charge since about 2005, when historian and economist Elizabeth Hoffman was in the role. Is that notable to you or incidental to the role? You are not coming at this as an academician. You know, I think it points out kind of what the job is and isn't, and they're not a chancellor. You know, their job is to talk about the university, promote the university, advocate for the university, and to manage the university's finances with their team, and to really be a spokesperson for CU and for higher education in Colorado. You don't think, then, the role of president is fundamentally an academic role. You see it, it sounds almost more like a business role. Yeah, it is not fundamentally an academic role. That That's a role that, that resides on the campuses. Our faculty are in charge of the curriculum and the chancellors and provosts oversee those faculty. And my job is to support them so that they can be successful. Fundraiser? Do you think that's a big part of the job? That is a big part of the job. And, you know, I work with the donors closely, but I coordinate closely with the campuses as well. When you took the job as interim, you said you had no intention to apply for the permanent job. (laughs) And yet here you are, sole finalist uh, from a pool of some 40 candidates. Uh, What or who changed your mind? Well, I changed my mind. And I said I wasn't going to apply. But when I started doing the work, I saw that I could do this very well and I could move the university forward. So I threw my hat in the ring. I had to compete just like everyone else. And I went through the same process as everyone else. And I am very grateful to the regents that 
I have emerged to this point in the process. There are critics who say you're not qualified to lead on diversity, equity, and inclusion. The previous president, Mark Kennedy, was censured by several groups, including the Boulder Faculty Assembly, for what they saw as his failure of leadership in this arena. Can you point to something in your professional history that demonstrates you can lead on the DEI front? You bet. So just recently, you know, we initiated an effort to put additional resources into this priority on the campuses. And so we have a strategic plan that I helped create along with our business school dean at, from CU Boulder, Sharon Matusik. And that strategic plan has goals in it and metrics in it for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And Give me an example of a metric. We look at the percent of new faculty, students, and staff who are coming to our campuses who are from underrepresented groups or veterans. We just did a survey on our campuses to look at the campus climate and to see the extent to which various communities feel like they belong on our campuses. Is measuring enough? No, it's not. And so you have to take action. And so uh, we, we just recently allocated almost $70 million exactly for that purpose. It's for uh, scholarships on our campuses. We're investing in efforts to increase the pipeline for uh, faculty and staff recruitment from underrepresented groups. There is growing concern that some faculty, grad students, staff can no longer afford to live in their communities due to the rising cost of living. How would you tackle that? Yeah, that's a huge challenge for all employers in the area, of course, since the cost of living is going up quite a bit. The CU Boulder campus actually just finished off a new uh, long-term planning project where they included plans for future housing for graduate students and and um, undergraduate students. Uh, it's going to continue to be a challenge on all of our campuses, just like it is for all employers. So part of the answer I hear you saying is more housing for graduate students, and that is presumably below market rate housing. More housing for graduate students and more housing for undergraduate students as well. But, you know, CU Denver is um, largely a commuter campus. UCCS does have quite a bit of housing, but a large number of students there are commuter students as well. What do you do then for faculty that struggle? It's a challenge. You know, we, we do have some programs for some faculty to help them with down payment assistance, things like that. But, you know, housing costs are increasing so rapidly in the area. It's a real challenge. We've had faculty who have been offered jobs and who haven't accepted those jobs because of housing costs. And in higher education in Colorado, we don't have the resources that other institutions do in other parts of the country. We're funded at 47th in the country when it comes to higher education. Not to say that the legislature and the governor don't support higher education. They do. In fact, they provided an 11% increase for higher education this year, which is incredibly helpful. But we're still 47th in the country, which means that our faculty and our staff get paid less than many of our peer institutions. And one of the impacts that that has is that it makes it harder to pay rent or to pay the mortgage and to find, find housing that you can afford. Well, there was a renewed push from workers in higher education to gain collective bargaining rights. The state actually has to consent to that. And a draft bill appears to exclude public colleges and universities. What's your stance on this? 
So from the very beginning of that bill, we said that if higher education was going to be included, then language needed to be included in the bill that guaranteed that the state was going to cover the cost that was associated with implementation of that bill. Your, your point was, if there's going to be collective bargaining that results perhaps in higher salaries, higher wages, where's the money going to come from? Is the state going to backfill? Exactly. Because if the state doesn't cover the cost, we would have to either make cuts or increase tuition to cover the cost. And we would love to be able to pay our, our faculty and our staff better. But it's frankly, it's not overly complicated. You just need the additional revenue to do that. And the state wasn't in a position to provide that guarantee in state law. And so we expressed concern with the bill. Couldn't you just fundraise more? In other words, when, you know, you need to build a new building or a new stadium, there's all kinds of money to raise. Uh, couldn't you do that in this arena? So generally, when we raise money, the gifts are very much restricted. They're restricted by contract. And so it depends on what the donor is interested in, like a building or like a program or like a scholarship, things like that. So you're saying if you went to donors and you just said, hey, our salaries are low, help us beef them up across the board, that would not be a winning message? It it would not be a winning message. And the cost associated with increasing salaries is an ongoing cost. Whereas many times when donors give gifts, that's for a one-time benefit. You were Governor Bill Ritter's budget man during the 2008 recession. At that time, you and the administration introduced the negative factor. This is a tool which has withheld billions of dollars from Colorado's K-12 schools since it was put into place. Kind of like a giant IOU to districts. Do you think that played a role in how many high school graduates went on to college. And that's a rate that's particularly low in Colorado. So the negative factor, that now called the budget stabilization factor, is something that was implemented during the Great Recession when we were cutting billions of dollars from the state budget. And it was one of the strategies to make sure that we were trying to spread the impact of, of the economic downturn across the state budget. They were very tough times. They were very tough times. And it was... Uh, it was one of the very last things we did because it was a priority for the governor, as a priority for me to protect K-12 through and higher education and the critical services of the state. And the negative factor or the budget stabilization factor lives on. The legislature is trying very hard to eliminate it. You know, our schools are underfunded in Colorado, just like higher education. And that underfunding probably is a contributing factor to the uh, high school graduation rate. Is that a legacy of democratic leadership? In other words, the last three administrations have been democratic. No, the, I've worked with quite a few governors and quite a few legislators and legislatures, and all have been supportive of higher education. And we have challenges in our state. And we've had a few recessions along the way, which of course are bumps in the road. But because of some of our constitutional funding restrictions, it makes it challenging to appropriately fund higher education, to appropriately fund K-12. through I imagine you're pointing, at least in part, to Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. I am, and we're, we're in a situation again where the Tabor surpluses are, are going to be enormous. And those dollars could be directed to K-12, through could be directed to higher education to address some of these problems. Senator Bernie Sanders has once again called for the cancellation of all student debt. Would that be a healthy step for the country? 
You know, I think that these broad brush approach uh, things when it comes to debt or free college, things like that, I'm not sure that's the best use of dollars. You know, I, I think it would be good to take a more targeted approach and really focus on folks who have the greatest amount of need. That being said, there is a lot of student debt in our country. It's really important when you think about student debt, though, that you separate out the conversation between public institutions and private institutions. When you're a resident student and you go to school at an in-state institution in any state, it's much, much more affordable than I think many people believe. Could I add one more thing? Of course, sure. So uh, the one where I think we really should focus first is Pell and doubling the Pell These grants. are the federal grants. It's the federal Pell grant, right. And those grants are available to students who go to public institutions and private institutions. They're focused on low-income students. And we actually led the effort to write a letter to our federal delegation from all the institutions in Colorado, publics and privates together, asking that they double Pell. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Todd Salomon is the sole finalist to serve as president of the University of Colorado system. Regents will meet for a final vote tomorrow. So we touched on Tabor in that conversation. And speaking of, a strong economy means next year Coloradans are due rebates under the law. Governor Jared Polis, who is up for re-election, wants to pay those out sooner. He calls his plan Colorado Cash Back. And with buy-in from the legislature, passage is almost a guarantee. Polis hopped on the phone with me to discuss this. Governor, what are you trying to achieve here? Well, look, I think one of the biggest challenges that people face is the cost of everything is going up, whether it's gas, and that's why we're suspending a new gas fee, whether it's rent, whether it's groceries. And really the best thing that I think that the state can do with our healthy surplus that we have because of our strong economy is immediately move up tax refunds and get them out. So we're going to be sending $400 per every individual tax filer in the state back to you for a rebate, tax rebate, and then $800 for a couple in September, as soon as we can get it out, late August, September. I think this is critical right now to get that money out. It's the dividend, it's the tax rebate from our strong economy, and it deserves to be back in your pockets. A cynic might say you are moving this up to an election year just before ballots go out. How do you respond? Yeah, so that actually has nothing to do with it. What it has to do with, this is the time that gas is high. This is the time when prices are high. Uh, we hope that uh, we're through this by next summer. And whenever we have the ability to help people sooner rather than later, of course we should take it. I mean, why on earth should the government sit on your money for another nine months rather than get it back to you now with a tax rebate. So it's just common sense. Obviously, there's going to be, you know, cynics who decry it. But I think that the real question I put to them is, why do you think the government should hold on to your money for another nine months? This is all under Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which says if the state collects money above a certain amount, it needs to be given back to the people of Colorado. You know, uh, Democrats have done a lot to try to undo Tabor. Are you singing Tabor's praises here? We've absolutely resisted any efforts that would eat into this refund that people deserve. It's your money. It's your taxes. You deserve it. And we, there should not be backdoor efforts to uh, give this money to special interests. In fact, one of the reasons these checks are so high is we actually reduced tax loopholes that benefited millionaires, well-connected corporations. And that actually helped increase the size of the refund that you'll be getting this September. 
That is Governor Jared Polis on his Colorado cash back plan. You might never feel as cash poor as when you consider buying a new home. We're working on a special about housing prices, and we'd like to hear from you. Have you bought recently? Are you trying? Have you given up on homeownership? Share your story. Same for folks who are on the seller's side. What's playing into the price, the decision to move, and where are you headed? On the CPR app, hit the menu button, then tell CPR to record a memo. Or leave a message for us, 303-871-9191, extension 4480. So that's our main number, 303-871-9191, extension 4480. And we'll be right back with what used to be a rarity in historic preservation, saving a place that was neither white nor wealthy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Nicotine addiction has touched the lives of so many people in Colorado. Every year on his birthday, March the 1st, he'd make a commitment to quit, and he would not last the month of March. On CPR's politics podcast, Purplish, we look at lawmakers' ambitious attempt to ban all flavored cigarettes and vape products, and how it reveals divides over everything from racial justice to taxes. Purplish, everywhere you listen to podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. A row of homes sits at the heart of a college campus in Denver. They are all that's left of a largely Latino neighborhood that was raised in the 1970s to build Auraria. Well, CU Denver says it will make new investments in these historic properties, part of a growing effort to honor Hispanic history through preservation. The national group Latinos in Heritage Conservation holds its conference in Denver this week. Desiree Aranda is the group's co-founder. Hi, Desiree. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. And Annie Levinsky is with Historic Denver, which helped save the Ninth Street homes. Hello again, Annie. Yeah, good morning. So the Ninth Street District is something of an exception because it saved working class homes. Uh, Annie, why is that unusual in historic preservation? Yeah, Historic Denver actually worked to save those homes back in the early 1970s uh, when the Auraria campus was being built. And the neighborhood had had a large Mexican-American, Hispanic, and Latino population at that time. And it was really one of Historic Denver's first projects to save those homes, um, which uh, are some of the oldest in our city. But they were working homes and the homes of regular people and had been used by generations. So it is a really special project, um, one we're reinvesting in, in terms of telling, though, the full story and making sure that the story of the folks who lived there at the time of displacement are part of that history. And that really bridges across to work that we've done even more recently um, across Colfax Avenue, just to the south there in La Alma Lincoln Park. I think displacement is so important to talk about because there were people living there when Auraria moved in uh, and that that is a legacy. So that is part of the story that you want to tell with these homes. 
Yeah, absolutely. There was a whole community with really tight bonds, uh, St. Catherine's Church, St. Elizabeth's um, schools and businesses um, that really tied the community together there. And when uh, urban renewal came through and the, the site was located for the higher ed campus, all those folks had to move and it really dispersed the community. And we've been engaging recently with the people who experienced that displacement. It's now been almost 50 years um, and hearing their stories and hearing about what they hope to see on campus. You mentioned CU Denver's work. There are a number of other partners involved. And that is one of the topics and stories we're going to talk about this week at Congresso in a session, as well as other activities here locally and nationally around preserving places that matter to uh, Latino, Latina, and Latinx uh, communities. Congresso is this, uh, this gathering of Latinos in heritage conservation. And Desiree, uh, just talk a bit about what is lost when historic preservation, as it has historically been, is focused on white, wealthy people? Um, that's a great question. And, you know, and something we should all be asking ourselves, um, you know, our communities have such important, rich history and contributions that we've made to the history of the United States. Um, you know, my own great, great grandparents helped build, I'm, I live in Phoenix, right? So help build um, the infrastructure, you know, on which Phoenix stands and, and many of our communities have, except we don't hear the stories um, very often, right, reflected in our local, state, and national uh, official designations or, or registries. And, and for many of us, you know, that's why this work is so important. It's a way of, of honoring our, our grandparents, our ancestors, and, and our communities um, and the contributions and as and the pain and struggles, but also the joys um, that they've had. Yeah, as you speak, it occurs to me that this is about understanding the foundations, almost literally and figuratively, as you describe it. When when you hear that word displacement, you know, associated with the Auraria campus, is that also a a word that resonates in your own family history? Um, yes, actually, it, almost the exact same story, except um, to switch the university. It was Arizona State University. My grandmother um, and actually her her grandparents um, lived in, in a, a, a similar neighborhood, working class, Mexican-American. Um, but it was, you know, abutting um, this at the time, a small university. Um, but during the era of urban renewal, starting about the 50s, um, the city wanted to grow um, and my grandmother's neighborhood was targeted by real estate uh, speculation. Um, and ultimately the entire neighborhood was displaced and all of the homes that date back to the, the late 1800s, um, Adobe homes, you know, that these people, my family and, and others, you know, built with their own hands were displaced. Um, a, a neighboring um, community was actually displaced with eminent domain. Um, so, you know, we see those two different strategies, right, but the same outcome. Mm. Um, and luckily, there is one home that still stands in, um, in my grandmother's old neighborhood, um, an old adobe home that ha has been also designated as a landmark. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, what an interesting mirror of the Ninth Street homes on Auraria. So, Annie, I've stood there uh, among those homes. Uh, I have heard the history of, I believe it was the restaurant and nightclub where so many uh, famous performers stopped. I heard how tight-knit that community was. Uh, exactly what sort of investment is going to be made in, in those homes to keep them preserved? 
Yeah, I think we are um, sort of in the process of having those conversations of both our organization, but also uh, other partners. So CU Denver, the Auraria Higher Ed Campus, uh, History Colorado, and then the displaced Aurarian community itself, um, which is organized in a couple of different ways and organic as well. And really talking about, I think the interest is both around how to tell the stories more broadly. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, there's pretty modest plaques that sort of talk about the very early, you know, the year the house was built and maybe who lived in it first, but that story doesn't come all the way forward to incorporate the community that was displaced. So there's interest in that. Uh, There's certainly interest in the restoration work. uh, And CU Denver has announced that they're going to start with one of the homes. I believe it's the Gomez home at 1050. 9th Street, um, that they're going to start working on first, just making sure it's in good condition. So then perhaps the uses can also be updated and made more interactive so that the students on the campus, as well as the community, has greater access and can really engage. Because I think um, the value of still having those structures there is we have the opportunity to revisit them, to reflect on them, to think about them in new ways, and to to continue to be engaged with them. If they had all been lost, you know, we wouldn't have anywhere to sort of revisit that place um, and to point to that history. If I recall St. Cajetan's, the church which still stands, I think it's a computer lab now. <laughs> it's part of the... It's, it's, an, uh, it's an event space. They may an use it that space. way sometimes. Okay. Um, it. We had our recent uh, partnership with History Colorado, uh, an event for displaced Aurarians there, and it was packed with folks who had grown up in that parish yeah. and been baptized or married there, which was really special. Okay, so Desiree, you co-founded Latinos in Heritage Conservation, I think in 2014. What's been one of your biggest wins? Um, so I think our, our biggest win is the fact that we're that we're here, that we're coming together and bringing um, bringing together heritage Latino heritage practitioners who, you know, prior to the formation of our organization, were working in silos. Um, historic preservation op- often happens at the local level. Um, so we're not, you know, our, our goal is to not replace the work that's being done at, at, the, at the local level, but rather to, to elevate and support um, various efforts. So one example that I, uh, I love to share because it's just um, such a great example is yeah. that of Chicano Park in San Diego. Um, and, you know, that is an effort that predated um, the formation of LHC. And one of our co-founders, Josita Lamantes, um, led that effort to recognize um, that space and get it listed on um, as a national historic landmark. Um, and if you're not familiar with Chicano Park, it's a fabulous um, community-created park um, under a bridge, um, under an interstate in San Diego in the Barrio Logan community there. Um, and this community dated to, you know, the, the early uh, 20th century, uh, around the time of ur- urban renewal um, uh, and and after World War II, you know, there were industry, um, heavy industry, toxic um, uses, junkyards, et cetera, put into that community. A freeway bisected it, um, splitting the, the neighborhood in two. And the community wanted a, a green space. They wanted public space for their, their families. Uh, so when the city instead um, decided to put a highway patrol station in that space, um, Chicano students from the local community college said, no, you know, we've had enough. And they, uh, they organized and actually marched and brought hundreds of, of residents there to take over the space. And, and today it's celebrated every, it's still celebrated every year on April 22nd, the Chicano Park Day, the takeover of Chicano Park. And they created, they actually, you know, planted greenery and, um, and painted murals and built, um, 
park benches and a kiosk where, you know, Aztec style kiosk where events are, are where events take place. Hmm. Um, so that's just such a fabulous, you know, example that I, I love to share. So that's in San Diego, but gosh, the echoes uh, of that community and our own, the notion of a highway bisecting a community, uh, serving mm-hmm. almost as a tourniquet on on travel and connection. Uh, Annie, last summer, Denver approved the La Alma Lincoln Park Historical Cultural District on the city's west side. Uh, before we go, what sorts of treasures and stories does that encompass? Yeah, that's work that we're really proud of. And I, I think to the build on what Desiree was just saying, you know, we were actually able to draw on some wisdom from LHC during that process. And I think that's one of the real benefits of the work LHC is doing is as being a resource to see what's happening in other cities. How is it being successful? You know, what are the the lessons learned? Um, and we we definitely communicated throughout our um, process and partnership on La Alma Lincoln Park. Um, which is just a rich neighborhood with so much um, amazing history. Um, some ways mirrors Auraria, um, but is still intact. And there are murals in the neighborhood that document Chicano and Chicana history that are very, very special, um, social institutions um, and, and homes of early Latino and Latina leaders in our community and the Chicano movement. So um, it's one of the first districts in the nation designated specifically for its association with Chicano movement history. Um, And one of the reasons I think that uh, we're really excited to have Congresso here to showcase that work. Um, It's part of what we're really dedicated to as an organization is is making sure everyone in our community really sees their stories reflected in the places that get preserved. And and La Alma is a great example of that. Well, I want to thank you both for your time uh, as this conference goes on in Denver. Thank you both. Thank you so much. So we heard from Annie Levinsky, Executive Director of Historic Denver, and Desiree Aranda. She's co-founder of what you heard there, LHC, Latinos in Heritage Conservation, which holds its biennial conference, Congresso, in Denver this week. And Colorado Matters is back in a bit with the interplay between long COVID and chronic fatigue. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The enormous T-Rex may have been a terror to all it encountered, but it was not invincible. It could be taken down by a 25-foot-long armor-clad plant-eater, Ankylosaurus. The Ankylosaurus stood relatively low to the ground. A narrow beak helped it strip leaves from plants, but it was built like a tank, studded with spikes. Bones and other body parts fused together to make it stronger. Its most fearsome feature? The tail where plates merged into a thick club. One swing could easily shatter the bones of a T-Rex. The ankylosaur roamed slowly across Colorado 60-some million years ago, and its seven-ton body left deep footprints on Skyline Drive near Canyon City, heading west through ancient marshlands. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. Long COVID may have something to teach us. Those lingering symptoms of muscle pain, brain fog, and exhaustion are familiar to people who don't have COVID, but who suffer from chronic fatigue. People who are often told it's all in their heads. Like Dr. Michael Gallagher of Denver. He was a triathlete, contracted a common virus, seemed to get better, but wound up bedridden. 
Gallagher's new book, Run Down, is out today. We actually spoke in December. Doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. You were a marathon runner. You are an orthopedic surgeon. That's a very physical job. What was your health like before you got sick? Before I got sick, I was a very active guy. I would typically run in the morning before going to work. Um, And that's kind of a way things uh, started each day for me to kind of wake my brain up. And then at work, uh, pretty, pretty long days. So, you know, 10 to 12 hours, often at work standing. So physically, I was pretty fit. Uh, Fast forward and contrast that with your condition at your worst, say in about 2020. At my worst, I was predominantly confined to a bed or a chair. Uh, That lasted actually several months. And I was using a wheelchair uh, with my wife or my kids pushing me around to get around if I went outside the house. It sounds terrifying. Did you know what was going on? Initially, I did not. It actually took several years for me to get diagnosed and to really figure out what was going on. Because I was burning the candle at both ends, I thought maybe I was just overdoing it. Hmm. My illness did start with a virus, and it always occurred to me that it probably was related to that. But because it went away and then came back, I wasn't quite sure. And things like chronic fatigue syndrome entered my mind. But when, as a doctor, I looked at the diagnostic criteria, I didn't exactly match what you were supposed to have to be diagnosed with chronic fatigue, or as it's now called, ME. Right, ME. And uh, let me have you say what ME stands for. It's myalgic encephalomyelitis. And I can explain that if you want. Sure. Myalgic refers to what you referred to, which is muscle pain. A lot of patients with ME have pain. Um, And the encephalomyelitis refers to inflammation of the brain and the spinal cord. And so this is really thought to be a neurologic disease, an inflammation of the uh, neurologic system. And and initially it wasn't wasn't thought to be that. And recently it's, it's changed names a few times. And I think most people have landed on ME as the as the most accepted term, although in the general population, most people have never heard the, the term ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis. It's still known more commonly as chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, and indeed, looking back, you believe that a virus you had in 2014 triggered uh, this long-term illness. So is it well documented that viruses can trigger ME? It's perhaps the most common story that ME patients have. And there's a refrain that says, I had a virus and I never got better. And that that is really true uh, for a lot of patients. Not everyone, uh, but I would say certainly the majority of patients will look back in their history and say, well, I just remember I had mono, which is a, a common one, uh, mm. and why it is uh, very common to start at that age when, when people get mono, so around high school and college. Uh, but it can be other viruses, too. That phrase, I had a virus and I never got better, it's a phrase that's going to resonate with people dealing with long COVID. Uh, and I say long COVID, we're only, what, about two years into the pandemic. You know, what is this moment revealing to you about 
the journey that may lie ahead for folks? There's two sides of of the coin here. There's um, the long COVID side, and then there's the ME side. For patients with long COVID in the entire world, you know, this has the potential to be a significant health problem for a long time to come, especially if what we're seeing now continues with the Omicron and we get an endemic coronavirus instead of a a pandemic where a year and two and three years from now we have these waves like influenza that come every year. And if patients are a certain percent of patients are, are having symptoms for an extended period of time, there may be a, a public health issue with that where we see millions of people who don't feel better once once the COVID goes away and that can affect their lives. And then the other side of it is the ME side. There are a lot of us patients uh, with ME who look at this and say, perhaps this is an opportunity for a scientist to figure out what is causing ME. Is it the same as what's causing long COVID? Hmm. Do we have any evidence that COVID could cause ME? I want to make sure that we're not unnecessarily confusing things, you know? It's a great question, Ryan. We don't know yet. We don't know if ME and long COVID are the same, if long COVID is a subset of ME. But what we do know is they have a very similar constellation of symptoms, and that includes uh, fatigue and pain and brain fog, as you mentioned, and post-exertional malaise, meaning if someone does too much, uh, they feel sick. They have flu-like symptoms. And that, for some people, is uh, going to a full day of work. And for other people, it's having the conversation you and I are having. And I was at that point at one time where a 20-minute conversation would make me sick. And I, I'm fortunate that I'm, I'm not there now, and I hope I'm, I'm never there again. But it's a testament to the fact that... Uh, it is a wide-ranging uh, set of symptoms and and uh, can be very severe at times. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about what long COVID might reveal about what has traditionally been known as chronic fatigue, uh, and uh, from a medical standpoint, is is now officially named ME. That's myologic encephalomyelitis, and My guest, Dr. Michael Gallagher of Denver, has dealt with ME and is uh, indeed helping us understand uh, what the connection might be to this in long COVID, which shares many of the same symptoms. So pain, brain fog, exhaustion. And, And just to explore a little bit more of your personal story, how did you get, if not entirely better, better than you were? I think the the biggest thing for me has been pacing. Um, pacing is perhaps the only universally recommended uh, treatment. We all have an energy envelope. I think that's true whether you're sick or not, but in ME, it's particularly true that there is an energy envelope uh, that you have to stay inside. If you do too much and you expend more energy uh, than then your illness will allow it. It'll make you sick. And for years, uh, I did not understand or appreciate that. And I would get sick, rest because I didn't feel well, then go try to do more. I tried to push through it, Mm. uh, which was counterproductive. It made me sicker instead of better. 
And so for, for me last year, I left work. I left work for 10 months. I, I was in bed. I wasn't operating. I wasn't seeing patients. I was predominantly uh, resting. And I think that is the biggest factor for me. Um, there are no approved medical treatments currently for ME. There are some that some doctors are trying uh, and some patients swear that has made them better. But the, the FDA has not approved the treatment for it yet. I, I would like to talk about the stigma of this. What was the stigma inside you about this? I mean, you'd been a runner. You'd done m- marathons, triathlons. Again, this very physical job of orthopedic surgery. What were your own perceptions of yourself as you dealt with this? And then what did you hear from those around you about your changed condition? I think the stigma surrounding ME is one of the hardest things for people to deal with, myself included. I identified myself as, uh, you know, as an ultra marathoner, as a, you know, an Ironman triathlete. And it was a very difficult reality to accept that I was not able to do those things. It also probably led to a little bit of denial of could this could this really be me? Am I really going down this path? And then, you know, upon my return to work, Ryan, I actually hid my diagnosis. Hmm. I was reluctant to come out and say that I had, um, you know, what my partners understood as chronic fatigue syndrome. Even you know, uh, many doctors don't don't uh, understand the the words myalgic encephalomyelitis and. Uh, encouraged by my family, I wrote an email to my partners and explained it all. I laid it out there for them, including everything I'd been through. And very thankfully, the response was great. And it inspired me to keep writing to try to help, uh, I think, not just the medical community understand, but the world at large understand there is no shame in being sick with this. It is not something that comes from someone being weak. Uh, it's not something someone chose. And we shouldn't have to be ashamed to say we have N- ME any more than we should be ashamed to say we have cancer. To what extent do you think that the stigma around ME is baked in to a medical education? Like what, what are medical students told about this? We were taught very little about it. Uh, we certainly were never, ever taught a mechanism of disease, meaning what causes this. Mm-hmm. We were taught in part uh, to stay away from patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, lest they uh, take up your time that you could be spending on patients with real problems. That was essentially the message that we were getting. Now, it was 20 plus years ago that I was in medical school, and things have changed, but um, a lot of us that are in practice were in medical school 20 years ago, and that's the basis of our understanding for this illness. Before we go, do you hope that COVID, long COVID, supercharges, I guess, both research into ME and maybe supercharges people's perception of it? Yeah. I not only hope, I know it will. Um Congress appropriated more than a billion dollars for research of long COVID alone. 
I know that's going to spill over. And there are wonderful patient advocacy groups that are working to destigmatize this and to partner with long COVID patient groups to help figure out the disease process, figure out the treatment, and be supportive of patients and their families that have this because it is, as you might imagine at times, a big burden on on the family as well. Mm -hmm. I can understand that. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Dr. Michael Gallagher is an orthopedic surgeon in Denver. We spoke in December. His book, Run Down, about his battle with ME, also known as chronic fatigue, hits shelves today. After a break, it's like skipping stones, except it's people. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. CPR is growing and evolving to better serve a growing and evolving audience in Colorado. And we're looking for new members of our team with job openings now for a fundraising manager and Salesforce administrator. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio. And your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org careers. It's springtime, so the trees are budding, the birds are chirping, and the skiers are face-planting into icy pools of water. Yes, it's pond-skimming time. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg says the tradition is back after a pandemic hiatus. It's the last day of skiing at Powderhorn Mountain Resort outside of Grand Junction. An overcast sky as thick as whipped cream hovers over a crowd gathered around a steep slope. At the bottom, a long man-made pond, about 100 feet of cold water. A snowboarder stands at the top. (laughs) Then zooms down and attempts to skim across the surface. He makes it about three quarters of the way before slowing to a stop. I ask Ryan Robinson, who works for Powderhorn, what was going through his head as he started to sink. I thought I should have worn thicker socks. He's not just the first pond skimmer of the day, but the first in three years here. Because of the pandemic, ski areas have not held these events since 2019. Sarah Lubin, who teaches adaptive skiing, is happy pond skims have returned. It's the glory. So you don't win anything out of it, but the idea that you make it across and you look cool doing it sounds awesome. Lubin looks in her element, smiling in a carnival-inspired mask with big feathers and zebra leggings. She's been pond skimming for years, mostly with success. 
But then I ask her partner how he feels about facing the murky pool, a foreboding yellow-green. Ah, nervous. I've not done a pond skim before. Tom Hess is dressed for the occasion in a floor-length white tunic with a red sash, his long hair framing his bearded face. Jesus on skis. And there's the whole walks on water parallel that uh, is a bad look for me if I don't make it. So it's going to be a tough hang if I don't get across. About 75 people take on the challenge in tutus and business suits and Hawaiian shirts and at least one Tigger onesie. Only about half make it. As for Jesus... He's one of the lucky ones, his partner too. While the history of pond skimming is as hazy as an unfiltered IPA, many people trace it back to Alberta, Canada in the late 1920s. Legend goes that two friends were enjoying a day of spring skiing when they encountered a newly formed pool of melted snow. One of them, I'm sure, asked the other to hold his beer as he tried to skim across. Kendra Scarfield with the resort Banff Sunshine Village says one made it. The other plunged into the cold. Her resort has been holding pond skims, which they call slush cups, near the same spot for more than 90 years. But she's only tried it once and crashed. And it was the coldest I have ever been in my entire life. And I'm Canadian, so that's saying a lot. Over the generations, the mix of pain and pride that pond skimming promises has rippled all over the world, often reserved for the frenzy that is the final day of the season, including at Steamboat Ski Resort on a recent freezing Sunday. Dressed as Superman, Jeremy Monaghan emerges with a shocked look and a big grin. Like everyone today, he does not make it all the way across. But he says pond skimming is about much more than that. Really just that like crowd enthusiasm, everybody celebrating the end of a great year. Steamboat employee Dallas Elmore was one of the first to try out the course this morning and then changed into dry clothes to watch. After two years of not normal, it's nice to have people out and smiling and just being happy. Doing something not everyone would dare to. You know, skiing is... A little bit inherently dangerous, but life without a little risk is not really a life, so people get a chance to jump in and... (laughs) Be joyfully wacky and weird and very, very cold. In Steamboat Springs, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Okay, if you want to see all this for yourself, the Breckenridge Splash into Spring Pond Skim is Saturday, part of the ski resort's 60th anniversary. Or you can simply browse photos at CPR.org, including one of Turbo Jerry in a midair flip. They're from our visuals editor, Hart Van Denberg. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a turbocharged team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, 
Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Paolo Chalcida and Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.